I'm cracking up right now because I've talked to a couple people that were giving me some feedback on preaching. And one of the practical things, they were like, watch your ums. And I remember listening back to a recording a, a few months ago, and I started tallying, and after I got past 30, I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so that's like front and center of my mind. If you're new here, if this is your first first time to church ever, welcome. Thanks for being here. We're just to let you know kind of what we do and how we do it. Uh, we usually sing some worship. We teach the Bible. We study it. We look at what the Bible says about a bunch of different different types of topics. Uh, and then we sing some more. We take communion. But basically, the purpose of why we connect every Sunday as a group is to try to figure out who God is and what it means for us to be people who called Jesus our Savior. So this is a place where we're learning, we're trying to figure out what that is. Uh, and wh wherever you are on that spectrum of you've been a Christian for your entire life, ever since you can remember, or you've never heard the, the word or the term Jesus or Christianity until yesterday, this is a place for you. So thanks for being here. Uh, if anybody needs a Bible, we've got some ushers in the back. Ernesto is wearing a Star Wars shirt. <laughs> So the force is strong with him, and he will deliver a Bible if you need one. So, so we've been going through a series called The Language of Faith over the past couple weeks, looking at words that detail and illustrate who God is. And today, Brian actually finished a two-part series on the word glory last couple weeks. So if you want to check that out, I'm going to reorient this. There we go. This is a little better. If you want to check that out, there, there's a really good overview on what the term glory means and how that relates to God. That, that, that's a term that we sing a lot uh, in worship songs. God's glorious. Maybe not a term that we use all the time, so, so definitely go check that out if, if you're curious about how the Bible uses that word. But today we're going to look at the word sin. And this is probably one of the most interesting and divisive words of Scripture but it's one that's really important, and, and I want to unpack that today. So to start out, I, I, I wanted to invite you all to stand as we read God's word uh, with me. And, and this verse is really short, so I apologize in advance if we're sitting down real soon after this. But we're going to be in Romans 3, verse 23, if you want to read this with me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you for a place that you've given us to hear your word. God, thinking about you as a God who speaks, maybe sometimes not in the ways that we want you to, but that you've given us your word and you've You've said that this is, this is the, the word, the promises, the, the instruction, the story of you. And you've given it to your people so that we can know you, God, that we can relate to you, that we can, uh, God, that we can be saved. Uh, so as we study this word sin and we try to figure out what it is, help us to, to hear your word to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd shape our hearts and our minds and only the way that you can about how to understand sin. Uh, and God, I pray that this wouldn't lead us to condemnation, but to salvation. Lord, that this wouldn't lead us to, uh, um, 
to rejecting you, but God, that it would lead us to worshiping you uh, for who you are, uh, your love, your goodness. So thank you, Lord. Live this time up to you in your name. Amen. Amen. So there's a lot of ways that culture talks about sin. And I think there's some phrases that we can look to as, you know, maybe familiar ones that we've heard that illustrate these different definitions of sin. And so I wanted to, I wanted to show or share a couple with you. Uh, the first one is ugliest sin. Have you ever heard this? <laughs> there's a great quote in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation that always draws this back to me. But it's basically saying extreme ugliness. Like sin is ugly. If something is ugly as sin, then it's super ugly. FYI, don't use this in terms of anybody. Don't use it for a person. That's, that's just a freebie right there. Uh, but extreme ugliness. Next one is Sin City. It's a pseudonym for Las Vegas. Uh, incidentally, Brian, our pastor, is driving back from there right now. Not losing the irony on that. <laughs> they were there for a conference. <laughs> Uh, but I thought that was funny. But, but the, the idea behind Sin City is it's this place of indulgences, of like things that are usually off limits, but we go to this place so that we can have fun and we can let loose and we can be in this place where no one's telling us what to do. The cardinal sin of, if you ever heard that, it's, 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 it's a term that we use for somebody who really broke the rules. Case in point, uh, my in-laws are Mexican, and one time they gave us a bunch of uncooked tamales, me being a white dude, put those tamales in the microwave and started eating them. And I don't know if you've ever done that, but that was a cardinal sin for Mexican family. Because that's like, tamales are precious. And I was eating basically hot masa out of a plate. And I remember telling my father-in-law, he was like, you did what to the tamale? <laughs> so, so the cardinal sin of fill in the blank, uh, this idea of sin is breaking a rule. You're a sinner. That statement, that sin is judgment. There, there's a song by Vampire Weekend called Unbelievers, and, and this is the chorus. It says, we know the fire awaits unbelievers, all the sinners the same. Girl, you and I will die unbelievers bound to the tracks of the train. So this idea of sinner meaning judgment that's eternal or unalterable. I, I was also talking to a buddy as I was trying to figure out, like, how people outside of the church think about sin. And he told me this. He's like, when, when I hear the word sin, I think about the terms that Christians use to talk about their set of ethical, moral uh, their, their values, their idea of judgments. And for him, he saw it as, as sin was a definition that applied for Christians, but not necessarily to everybody else. So kind of this, this idea that, that ethics are subjective, and when Christians talk about sin, they're talking about their specific code of ethics that don't really apply to anybody else, but that they have. Uh, so yeah, how, how Christians define their idea of right and wrong, that, that, that sin is, is the subjective idea of morality. But today, I want, I want to argue that the term sin and the concept of it used in Scripture describes the universal human condition and the conflict that we're all wrapped up in. So, so to start off, there's a, there's a group called the Bible Project. We, I feel like we watch one of these videos every three weeks, but they do a really good job at giving an overview of the word sin. It's a little bit of a fire hose, but I think it, it covers a lot of the topics that we're going to look at today as we try to understand this term. So let's roll the tape.
most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hair and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, chata is crouching at the door, it wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia 
as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others, and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. All right, so we're going to cover a lot of those topics and dig a little bit deeper into some of the scripture that, that lines up with some, some of the things that were mentioned in the video. But I want to start with the, the backdrop of sin. And, and I think if, if, we, if we want to talk about sin, there's so many surrounding ideas, and we're actually going to cover some of the other terms like atonement in later sermons in the series. But I want to start with the backdrop of sin, which is the image of God. So if we, if we look at Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. This is what they read. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So what's interesting about this passage is that it starts out saying that we're created in God's image. And that's kind of an arbitrary term, right? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? We, we haven't seen God, so it's not like, oh, I look like... Sometimes you talk about par parents and kids, like the apple didn't fall far from the tree if their parents or the kid looks like their parents or if they act that way. And sometimes it's hard for us to be like, what is the image of God? Like, if I can't see God, what does that mean to be created in his image? And, and what it means is that we're created with the qualities and the capacities, the, the intellect, the consciousness, the creativity, the love, the faithfulness, the authority, little bits and pieces of, of those aspects that God has in his fullness are in you and me. And, and when, when it, it's the idea of when people look at, at us or, or when humans were beheld, the response would be, oh, that's, that's really like God. Like, that's, I, I see God in humans. Uh, theologian N.T. Wright says this. He said, God made a wonderful creation and put humans into, into it uh, to sum up the praises of creation and to look after his world. This is what it means to be created in God's image. Angled mirrors reflecting God's love into the world and reflecting, God, reflecting creation's worship back to God. So it's this, it's this reflection, like we're reflecting uh, God's love to the world, and, and we're reflecting our worship back to God. So that's that picture of being created in God's image. And what, what's really interesting is, is God says, I've created you like me, and then he says, he pronounces blessing over them. And in verse 28, he says, and God blessed them. 
And that's, again, a kind of an arbitrary term, but, a term, but we get a, a really cool picture of what blessing means in the story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, where God the Father is like, he's somewhere up in the clouds and he's looking down and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And blessing, when God pronounces that, the idea is God saying like, I am so stoked on you. I love you. You're so, like, God's ecstatic about the human creation. And the reason why we need to think about this as we're painting this backdrop that sin comes into is a lot of times we can think about sin as this list of rules and breaking those rules. And, and, and that's, that, that's the, the context that we think of sin of. And like, gosh, if we break God's rules, he doesn't love us. But here we find that God pronounces his blessing over all humanity even before he says anything about what they're supposed to do. Hear that. God, God says, I love you. You're, you're amazing. I'm so excited for you. You're created in my image. He says that before any, any sort of, here's what you're supposed to do. Uh, theologian Legan Duncan says, uh, God professes his love and blessing before ever giving them commandments. Uh, he really puts a finger on this. And, 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 and his point is that blessing and relationship precede those commands. But, but this is where the, the commands come in. He, he says, be fruitful, multiply, go on and fill the earth and, and do all these things. And, and what God's doing when he commands them to do this is, is he's telling people who are created in his image what it means to live as people created in his image, right? I'll, I'll say that again. God's, God's telling Adam and Eve, he's telling people what it looks like to be created in his image and how to live that way, which is going forth and being fruitful, procreation, filling the earth, and subduing it, cultivating it. And, 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 and we can, again, we can talk about a lot about what that means, but God's saying all of this on the back of creation, which he just did. He's like, I created all this stuff. I put all this stuff in here, and I want you, as created in my image, to go and do that. And so, so God's commands for us outline how we were intended to live as people created in his image. Are you all tracking with that? Does that, does that make sense? Okay, cool beans. Uh, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the same exact thing God's saying, is, so this is in the con- context of Israel being taken out of slavery in Egypt, and God says, look, I am the God who, like, look what I did. I brought you out of slavery. I delivered you. I, I, I brought you out of oppression. Uh, suffering, pain. I, I did, look at all these things I did for you. I have blessed you. That's what God's trying to say in that statement. And then he, he outlines these 10 aspects to the people of Israel to remind them that they're created in his image. And this is what it means for them to be a people who operate that way. Uh, Leviticus 19 is actually a, a, a recap of the Ten Commandments, and it's a beautiful section of Scripture if you read it. But God basically restates the Ten Commandments, saying that his people are to share their food with the poor and the immigrant, to not steal, to not cheat or lie, to not curse God, don't rob or oppress your neighbor, which we know is just anybody, right? You can look at the parable of the Good Samaritan to know that your neighbor is anybody. Uh, to pay people fairly, to care for the disabled, to act justly and without uh, partiality, to not slander, to honor your family, don't hold grudges, and lastly, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the only time, Leviticus 19, that, that God mentions that in the Old Testament. But Jesus takes this, and where have we heard this? 
We've heard it in Matthew 22 when Jesus, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, they're like, what's the greatest commandment? And they're like, we got this guy, we're going to trick him. And Jesus says the law and the prophets is, prophets is summed up in this. Everything, the entirety of what it looks like to live as people created in God's image is summed up in this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus is saying is he wants us to know that that our truest, our best, our most authentic self is actually when we do these things. When we love God with everything we have, everything we are, and we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jesus would also elaborate on that and say, love others as I have loved you. Again, if we, we'll get to this in a little bit, but if we really want the standard of what it looks like to live in God's image, Jesus is the paradigm. And so loving others as Jesus loved us is how we can think about this is what it really looks like to fulfill that second commandment. So again, that backdrop of, of creation of humanity is all about you and me being created in God's image and, and God telling us what it means for us to be created in his image. That is super important for you and I to think about not just who we are as people, but what it means for us to live in this world, to relate to God if we believe in God or if we're just hearing about God for the first time and also to, to relate to others. So, that, so that's the backdrop of sin, but, but now let's, let's look at defining sin. So, so in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 8, we find this really good story that depicts how sin entered the world. And granted, this, some of these stories are really crazy, and the whole historicity behind Genesis is another topic. But I think, if anything, the story really illustrates the concepts of sin. So if you're having a hang-up on, like, Adam and Eve, tree, what is this all about? Uh, there's, there's, there's some great conversation and dialogue around that. So I, I just want to throw that out there as we're getting into some maybe funky stories here. So, so Genesis 3, verses 1 through 8, starts like this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. In other sections of scripture, the serpent is actually identified as Satan, the tempter, the one who is, who is advocating for sin and disobedience towards God in this world. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made them, them themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. 
So the first thing about this story that is really cool as we're trying to understand this concept of sin uh, is, is that there's a misconception of who God is and, and who God created us to be. So the serpent says, he, he questions God. He, he literally says God's lying. He's like, God, God's, not, God's not really saying what, what, what you heard him say. And then, and then this is really interesting, too. The, the, the serpent says, what God said to you is actually keeping you from experiencing fullness of life. What God said to you, the command that he gave you about that tree, the, the serpent's saying, like, that's not the case. It, actually, if you disobey God, you are going to be more godlike. So l- l- let's think about that, that, that for a sec. What, this, what the, the serpent is saying to Adam and Eve is, Here's the, here's the command that God's given you, the command that is, is, is illustrating what it means for you to be people created in God's image and what that, what that means, how, how you're supposed to live, what you're supposed to do. And part of it includes not doing this thing, right? God, God says, this is, this is, it's the only thing that he says, don't do it. And we think that's pretty easy, but, but the question that gets planted in our hearts that connects with, with our ability, our God-given ability to desire things and to judge things is this idea that maybe there's more that, that I can experience that God's keeping me from. And if I disobey God, I'm actually going to be able to get that. I, I'm going to be more God-like. And that is, is one of the great lies of sin is that we start to think about God's commandments as hindering us from being more God-like. We see, we see God's commandments as impeding our ability to be our truest selves. And we see the disobedience of God's commands, saying like, no, God, that, that's not right. I'm going to do this as actually leading to more life, to more, to more blessing for ourselves, so that, 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 that by doing that, we're going to be truer versions of who we are. And so, so Adam and Eve, they're, they're sitting there, they hear all this, and, and, and it's so interesting. It says that they, they look at the tree and they say, that's good. It's good for food. It's practical. I could eat that. That could fill my tummy. They look at the, at, at the tree and they say, oh, it's delightful. That, that, that looks pretty good. I'm, I'm stoked on it. That's, that's a beautiful tree. I was coming back from Lake Lopez last night, and there, like, there's, there's orange groves out there, and like the smell of the orange blossoms and it just looks so beautiful. And I was thinking about this verse and, and just imagining Adam and Eve standing in front of this tree and thinking, like, that is so beautiful right there. Oh, my gosh. I, 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 we're enthralled by what this is. And, and then they, they look at, at what the tree can do for them, that they think it can do for them. They're like, dang, if we, if we did that, that would make us more wise. We would actually know what's going on. We would know good from evil. And all that combined, they're like, let's do this. And, and something that's interesting to me, I, I always thought of this story as, as Eve's like there doing, doing, doing her thing, you know, take the tree, and then Adam's walking by, and he's just like, hey, I was going to go see, oh, you got some fruit over there? What's, what's going on? But they're, they're right there. It, it, the, the scripture says that, that Adam was with Eve, and they're, they're processing this together. They're, they're thinking about it together. And, and they, take, they take the fruit, they, they disobey what God said not to do. And here's where it gets crazy, is think about what they hoped from that action. They hoped that 
it was going to fill them, that they were going to have enjoyable experience, that it was going to open their eyes to be more godlike. And what we find is that it does the exact opposite of what they hope. And not just 50-50, but it actually is more detrimental to their lives. And, and if we look at scripture, we see that, that this is the beginning of humanity's struggle with this desire that we have, this, this, this distorting of how we see God and how we see ourselves. This is the beginning of this process. And so, so this is what happens is, as first, they see that each other are naked. They experience shame. They experience the, oh my gosh, like, and then they, they have to go do something. They, they have to go cover themselves. They're, they're separated because of this experience. Uh, and then they, they, see, they hear, they see, they experience God walking in the cool of the day. And then they hide from God. This is the first time in the history of humanity that God, that people had the desire to hide from God. The one that said, I love you. I'm so excited about who you are. I'm so ecstatic that you are this beautiful creation that is made in my image. And the result of this action is that they want to hide from God. And so instead of experiencing blessing that, that they were promised, it doesn't deliver, and yet it delivers far more hurt, negative, negativity. I'm searching for words to describe more of what that is, and we'll get to some in a bit. But are you all seeing that, 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 that interplay there? That the expectation of what not following how God says we're supposed to live didn't come through at all. And that is, that is the struggle that we have with sin. Um, and Hosea 6, 7, it says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant and they dealt faithlessly with me. And what Hosea is getting at is, is, is God saying, we were in this beautiful relationship together and, and, and they had no faith in me that I was who I said I was, that I had their best intentions for them, that I loved them, that what I was saying was actually leading to life. They, they didn't have faith in, in our relationship and, and, and they broke it. So, so the result of sin is that, um, th- th- this is another aspect to it, is I think we, we begin to see God's commandments as an enemy of ourselves. We, we see what happens when we disobey God and, and Adam and Eve start blame shifting and say, no, it's not my fault. It's not. They're trying to get out of the consequence. But what we see is, is we start to view God's commandments as things that actually bring hurt to our lives rather than blessing. That's a layer to that distortion of what sin is. Uh, in Romans one twenty one uh, through 25, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And what Paul's getting at is that sin distorts our ability to understand who God is and who we are. There's another term, idolatry, that gets used a lot in the Bible. 
And, and the reason why it's, it's used in the description of sin is it talks about this, this desire, this inclination that we have to search for things and expect uh, from things what we can only find in God. So looking at the way that God's structured reality, our, our sin is this desire to look for all, all the things that we were supposed to find in God and all these other things. Um, so although humanity is still created in God's image, our ability to image God is severely diminished because of sin. Sin disables us from being and living authentically as we were intended to. Uh, so I want to talk about the source of sin, um, kind of covering some ground in the video, but, but, but sometimes we can, we're like, okay, there's this desire, but what is it? I, I, I don't really understand how this factors into my experience and where, the, where sin comes from. So in Matthew 15, 19 through 20, uh, Jesus actually says this. He says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And what Jesus is saying is he says that sin is actually in our hearts. The, the idea of heart in Scripture is that it's the very center of our desires, our thoughts, our moral conscience, our decision-making. And Jesus is saying that that's, what, that's the locus of sin. It's in here. It's in us. And that it's not caused by our actions. There's a theologian, Millard Erickson, Great name, by the way. <laughs> uh, he says that we aren't sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. Think about that for a sec. We're, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin's part of this, this inner being of who we are, the center of our desires, our hopes, our dreams, our thoughts, our morality. Uh, later in the New Testament, the uh, James, who's Jesus's brother, uh, he says this. He says, "Let no one say when I'm tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death." And what James is pointing out here is, is that sometimes we can blame God for our sin. That's a common experience, I think, for a lot of people. But James is saying, like, no, 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 that's, that's not God. That's, that's the desire in our heart, our sin, that is actually leading us to this. Uh, and that, that our desires, when they, when they conceive, when they set root, they give birth to those actions. And the result of that is death. Uh, that, that famous verse, the, the wages of sin is death. What is death? It's, it's, it's separation. It's separation from God, from people. Um, right now, death is something that is, is very personal to our family right now. And, and thinking about that in, in a very close experience to me has been very profound in thinking about that concept as, as being something that the Bible uses to talk about sin, that it, it's this slow unraveling of our existence and our connection with people most most importantly our connection with god and what's interesting to me is that if, if we if we look at the uh, what that is is it, it's, it's the exact opposite of what jesus says in matthew 22 the two greatest commandments again love god with everything you have love your neighbors as yourself sin brings forth death which is the exact opposite of those two things Again, sin 
is, is, is what leads us to live absolutely backwards than how we were supposed to be created as people in God's image. So, so just talking about sin in my own life, I, I, I don't, I don't want, I, I hope we can all never treat people who preach the word on Sundays as, as, as these perfect people who have no baggage, no crap in their lives. Because the struggle is real, right? We're all going through that. And I know this is a heavy sermon. Sin is not a topic that is fun to talk about, but it sets up the backdrop for the most amazing and life-altering news in the history of the world. And so digging into it gives us perspective on the greatness of who God is. So, so bear with me for a sec. Uh, so about two years ago, when we found out that we, we have a, a 16-month-old baby girl, Shiloh. She's the cutest thing in the world. Um, and when we found out that we were going to have our daughter, I started worrying about how we were going to make ends meet. Jill was working. I was working here at the church. And we started penciling everything out. And it was like, okay, if Jill keeps her job, we're like, how's childcare going to work out? What's going to happen? And, and for me, what, and I, I'm looking at this in retrospect and realizing this is, is, is what I was, this is an idol that I have, something that I was placing at the forefront of my desires that I wanted in, in a specific way and that I would see God not giving me. And, and it was this, is that I, I wanted to be in a place of vocational ministry. I, I wanted to work, have, have my income be supported by the church. And as I'm looking at where God was providing for a family, it wasn't there. And so the desire that I had to, to do that and seeing that that's not how God wanted to work in our lives, I started getting really bitter I was frustrated at our, our leadership. Um, I was frustrated, all cards on the table. I was frustrated with y'all. I, I will be completely honest with having the feeling that our church isn't giving enough to support full-time staff. And that's a confession that I'm, I wanna make before you all to ask forgiveness for, um, because that was not right. But this is the effect of sin taking root and bringing about death in my life. Uh, I found myself not wanting to be here, wanting to leave early. I had a hardness of heart towards God, towards our church. Um, I found myself, and I, I would have called it venting at the time, but I was subtly slandering my experience with the local church. Um, I've had to go back and talk to people and, and ask for forgiveness and reframe that season of my life. And, and if you talk to me, during that time, I, I would gather that you would get a sense of that because I was wrestling with God not giving me what I wanted and blaming everybody else and, and getting hardness towards everybody else, the church, his people, towards God. And, and what I realized after sitting in this for, for months was that there's sin in my life that is leading me towards death. The people, the God that I love so deeply, this thing that I want is tearing me away from, from, from those people, and most importantly, from God. Our family felt it. I felt it. Um, I think our, our youth ministry, maybe consciously or unconsciously, felt that. 
So the waves of sin in our own life aren't just with us, right? It's like we're both the perpetrator and the victim of sin in so many ways. And so, so for me, it took me a while to, to, to do business with that by God's grace. And I share that to say that all of us, the human experience is we're all on some level struggling with these things that we want, that we're looking to other things to fulfill, and we're not letting God lead us, and we're not trusting him that he is good, that he loves us, and that he will provide for us. Um, I think it's important, too, for us to think about how sin affects us as a church. And I was reading this verse earlier on this week, and it really stuck out to me. It's, it's from the parable of the sowers when Jesus is explaining it in Matthew 13, 22. And he says this, he says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is one, this is the one that hears the word, the word, but the cares of this word and world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for the one who was sown among, or sorry, I'm reading this wrong. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of the riches of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I think we need to realize that we live in one of the most affluent and amazing and rich and wealthy places in this, maybe even in this world. There's so much comfort and safety here, not for everybody, but for us, I think, when it comes to the deceitfulness of riches, safety and comfort can be one of the biggest blind spots for us as a church as we think about who we are as people who are trying to live in the image of God. And I think back to Leviticus 19, where God is outlining what it means for us to be made in the image of God. And when he gets to, to loving the poor, the oppressed, uh, the marginalized, the immigrant, the, the, the disabled, the orphan, I think if someone asked me, does Nick love God well, they'd say, yeah, like, I think so. I think he loves God really well. But if they asked me if he loves his neighbor, as, as scripture defines his neighbor, does he love his neighbor well? There isn't evidence in my life on this consistent basis that proves that I'm as committed to loving and, 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 and suffering with those who are suffering and caring for the poor, the oppressed, um, as I think God desires his people to. And, and I, I don't say this to condemn us if we're resonating that, but more so to say we are created in God's image. And, and if this is the case, then we're missing out on the life that God has for us and stepping forward and living as he wants us to live. And so I just think there's, there's so many things that we have that can build comfort and safety around us that distance us from the experience of suffering, um, that distance us from, from being out of touch with the poor, the orphan, the marginalized, etc. And for us, this is, this is misunderstanding God's second commandment, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Or as Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Um, so that's, that's something that I, I want to encourage us to pray about, because I think there's so much life and vitality and impact that God has in store for the church and what we do and how we, we, we use our, our image bearing 
to bring the gospel to places. And so we, I think we need to step forward in this as a church. So just wrapping up, the, 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 the problem again, restated, is that we've all fallen short. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And to, to, to paint the magnitude, I think, I think when we hear all, we think about kind of like everybody in this room or everybody that we know. But when Paul's writing this, he's saying all humanity, past, present, future, everybody has, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and the translation in the Greek for fallen short, it, it actually means, uh, it's not just like falling short, like you're trying to jump and you missed it, but it's actually missing out experientially, experientially, experientially on God's glory. And as Brian taught last week, God's glory, it, it basically what what Paul's saying here is that we've sinned and our sin has led us to miss out on the greatest thing imaginable. And so again, our, our, the, the universal human condition and the problem is that because of these desires that we have, it's separated us from God and it's separated us from each other. And in Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death, but then it goes on to say that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. One of the most famous verses in the New Testament, maybe in all of Scripture, is John 3.16. And this is what it says. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him... Whew, I'm getting emotional because this is awesome. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, to condemn the world, but in order that it might be saved through him. And this is the story of God. This is why the word sin helps us understand the story of God is because this is what it is, is that from day one of humanity's creation, God has said, I love you and I value you above all other creations. And that his love for humanity runs so deep that he has provided a way against all odds for us to be reunited with him as we were intended to be as people created in his image. That's the story of the Bible. That is the story of our struggle with sin and where God inputs himself into it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus lived, this is a phrase that we hear often, that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived as image bearers of God. But then he died the death that we should have died as sinners who have lived life in disobedience and rejection of God. And what the promise, the gospel, the good news that, that, that happened 2,000 years ago that is still true today as it will be forever is that Jesus says, the record that you have and the separation that you have against God is no more because I've taken care of it. And what it means to be a Christian, first and foremost, is having faith that we in ourselves don't have the means to restore our relationship with God, but trusting that Jesus does. Whew. So... So the location of sin is in the heart, and, and uh, we can have the worship team tee up for, for worship right now. 
close the door. But but sin, sin is in our heart, and 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 this is such a beautiful verse in Ezekiel thirty six. This is Ezekiel thirty six twenty six through or twenty six through twenty eight. This is what the prophet says. This is God speaking. He says, "I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within. Or sorry, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you." and give you a heart of flesh. Let me read that again. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And this is the promise that God has the ability to give you a new heart. That is the crazy promise of scriptures that God says, start trusting in me, start believing the truth of what Jesus has done, and I will actually start to reshape your heart so that you begin that path back to living your, as you are authentically created to live as an image bearer of God. And that's the invitation for us today. For those who, who don't know Jesus, who don't, have never heard any of this, this is the first time you're wrestling with some of these, these ideas, um, that's the invitation is to consider what it means to trust Jesus with who you are, with, with your sin. If you resonated with any of that, um, God's doing something. He's inviting you to, to be part of what he's doing through Jesus, and that's to bring you back into relationship with him. And for us who are Christians, um, the process of repenting from sin and confession is how we continue to deal with the sin in our life by God's grace. Um, so let's stand and let's worship. Um, there's communion in the back if, if you want to experience that.